Our scripture reading. Scripture reading comes from the book of Revelation. Book of Revelation, chapter 2. Revelation, chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. This is the church at Pergamum. These are the seven churches that John the Revelator now is writing. The messages are delivered by an angel, but you'll notice that every word of these two chapters here in chapter 2 and 3 are the words of the Lord. So this is Jesus, through his Spirit, communicating and talking to the seven churches of Asia. Uh, Asia Minor, which is modern Turkey, this is the western half of that great uh, province. And the churches are lined up. The first one was Ephesus, and then we saw Smyrna, and now Pergamum, and then the road's going to turn and come back down, and the last four churches will end up at Laodicea, which is not too far from Ephesus. So really, it's a circuit, and this is exactly the way these letters went. So hear now the word of the Lord. Revelation 2, 12. And the angel of the church, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak, to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. What about this town, Pergamum? Not near as well known as some of the other towns that we find in the New Testament. But there's a church there, apparently been a church there for a pretty good while there in the first century. But it was a little more famous, not for its church, but for its culture. And this is basically a call in these letters and in this book of Revelation for God's people to not compromise with the culture, to not be consumed and dominated and possessed by the culture, to love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Because as this book amply says, the things of the world are passing away. This is the Lord exhorting us as believers, whatever town we live in, whatever century we live in, to keep the faith, to endure, 
to persevere, to hold on, to remain in and loyal to Christ, the true King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So this town, Pergamum, was a kind of an interesting town. It was one of the first towns in the ancient world, on that part of the world, that became a place of emperor worship. In the culture, early in the uh, last century or the, or the first uh, century uh, before Christ, the Caesars began to conquer. First Julius Caesar and then Augustus Caesar. And in the early days of Augustus Caesar, uh, this town, Pergamum, erected a large temple to the worship of Augustus Caesar, Octavian, the August one. They built this shrine, and what you see here is the beginning of imperial Rome. And one of the very first towns to participate in that culture and in that cult is the town of Pergamon. They had four great pagan deities that had temples there already. But now greater than all was this temple built to worship Caesar. Let me put it in modern terms. To worship the state. The state is a worship of man rather than God. There's two great errors that we make in our worship. We forsake the worship of the one true God in order to worship man, collective man, the state, and individualistic man, the particular person, the human soul. And if you'll study worldviews and philosophy, you'll see that spectrum and that pendulum back and forth, either collective man, the state, all men together that works for a greater good or some notion of the individual who has rights and who is to be favored above all. And political thought and religious thought, which is the basis of political thought, will swing back and forth. Both of them having their good points and their bad points. Neither of them putting the focus where it needs to be. And that is upon the Lord God, high and lifted up, the creator of heaven and earth, the almighty God, the true one who exists for all eternity. And so this is the conflict that you'll find in the ancient cities of Rome, the cities of the Roman Empire in the first centuries of the Christian faith, and you'll see it continuing. There's a sense, and I know most of you kind of understand this, uh, some may disagree, it's kind of a philosophical point, but there's a sense in which we still live in the Western Hemisphere and in these United States, we still live according to, in many ways, the culture of the Romans. There's been no subsequent culture that has dominated over Latin culture, Roman culture. And that's what we see going on here. We see the very beginnings of it. We have moved away from Greek culture, Macedonian and Attica or Athens, 
And we've moved to Rome culturally, politically, philosophically, religiously. And that's what you have at Pergamum. You have this great throne or seat or dwelling place of the imperial state who dominates all of life, all of life, and therefore is a totalitarian, the total state over everything, over mind, heart, soul, will, body, owns everything, dispenses everything, judges everything, dominates everything and everybody. Later on in the book of Revelation, not too far ahead of us, this state's going to be called the beast. This state is going to be given the power of the serpent. The serpent, the dragon, is Satan. They just, the Bible says that. We don't have to try to figure out a lot of these symbols. The Bible just tells us that great dragon, that serpent, is Satan. And so here in this eastern half of the Roman Empire, in the western section of the eastern half of that part of the Mediterranean world, which was the Roman Empire, we have the seat of Caesar. But it's called, from the perspective of heaven, and that's what we're trying to get now as we read the book of Revelation. We're trying to get a glimpse of heavenly perspective. We're going to see the throne room. We're going to see the temple. We're going to see the particular people and the particular characters and the Lord himself displayed to us in the heavenly throne room. But this is the earthly throne room. This is the seat, the dwelling place of the beast and the power that's given to him. So the Lord just flat says what it is. He says, I know where you dwell at Satan's throne. The Lord's not deceived and we should be deceived. We need to recognize satanic, demonic, governmental, imperial, state-sponsored ethos when we see it. And that's where Christians get in trouble because we have a whole different view of our understanding of who we are and why we're here and what we're doing. The culture of Christ is not compatible with the culture of Caesar. Now the Lord lays down for his people that they are to render to Caesar that which is Caesar's. We're not to be rebels. We're not to be tax dodgers. We're not to be insurrectionists. We are to render to Caesar. And God has given Caesar certain delegated, limited powers. What he's given Caesar, the Caesar is the power of the sword. The sword is the instrument of death. It's also that which divides asunder. It's a discerning, a discriminating, a judging implement. And God has given to civil government the power of the sword. It's also the power of punishment, corporal punishment 
and capital punishment. In fact, in the book of Romans, the word that's used is the word deacon. The civil government is God's deacon, God's servant, to administer certain things within a certain area. What exactly? Well, it's to be, I'm in Romans 13 now, by the way. <clears throat> what, what the Lord has given the state is the power of the sword, and it is the power to be a terror to evildoers and a protector to the righteous, to those that do good. You see that? The, the sword is to be a two-edged sword. And it's to discern, make judgments. It has police power. Ultimately, it has military power. But it is not to just do whatever it wants to. The civil government is to follow the ordinance of God, the eternal ordinances of God's law for all of the universe and all of creation and all of humanity, for all of time. The state is to use the sword to enforce morals, uprightness. Condemn the thief and exonerate the charitable. Take the life of the murderer and promote godly living and life. I'm not sure you learned this in your eighth grade government class. But you learn it at church. And that's where the church gets in trouble. Because if the state gets out of line and does not perform his deacon duty in being a servant of God as a terror to evildoers and a rewarder of the righteous, then the state begins to call evil good and good evil. And then they go forth to punish evildoers who in fact are righteous doers. And the state slowly moves its law and its law enforcement and then ultimately its judging and its adjudication and ultimately its penalties and its pardons in the direction of unrighteousness and away from God, and away from light, and away from life, and away from God's truth. That's where the church gets in trouble. Because if the church stands for what God has stood for all through the years, an unrighteous and ungodly government will be at crossways with the church and will be against the church. And so this has happened all through history. And we studied the ancient example of it with Babylon and Daniel back a year or two ago. And now we're studying the New Testament version of it. And I hope there's wisdom among us to discern the modern application of it. That's why, according to our text, poor old Antipas lost his life. Because he was doing what the Lord commended them for doing. And that is, they were hold, holding fast to my name. My name means my person, my reputation. 
there's a great big plaque that was all over the ancient world and it read something like this. There is none other name under heaven given among men but Caesar. That sound like a familiar quote? That was what Peter said on the day of Pentecost when he called the people to true belief and worship in Christ. He applied that not to Caesar, but to Christ. There's none other name under heaven. That's what gets us in trouble as Christians because we believe in exclusivity. That is, we believe that it is not just Christ, but it's Christ exclusively. It is Christ alone. He is the, the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by him. Because you see what, what totalitarian, godless government wants is it wants us to come about with some measure of compromise. The compromise is that we can live according to Caesar's rules and laws, pay homage to Caesar. We can make sacrifices at the altars of Caesar we can swear allegiance to Caesar. We can look to Caesar for our daily bread. We can look to Caesar for our care and safety and security from the womb to the tomb. And as long as we make that confession and have the name of Caesar above all, we'll be okay with Caesar. In fact, Caesar's going to really be accommodating. He's going to believe in some measure of freedom of religion. You can have your spirituality. You can have your church. Just keep it within the four walls. Keep it within your little heart. Make sure everything you believe and know is always in your heart. Keep it between your ears. Keep it to your mind. And keep it to yourself. If you do that, you'll be okay with Caesar. But if you speak out, if you stand up, if you hold forth, if you proclaim the name of Jesus Christ, you're going to be in trouble with a totalitarian state. Just look at the history of the world. Look at the history of the 20th century. You don't have to be an expert in world history to see. Just look at what went on in Christian Europe in the 20th century and into the 21st century. And that's where you get in trouble. This poor guy, Antipas, the scriptures, the, uh, the tradition, not scripture, but the tradition says that he was one of the, the well-known Christians, or he might have been a bishop, but at least he was well-known as a believer, was roasted in a brass bowl. That's a pleasant thought under Domitian's domination, the emperor Domitian. And now, let me wrap this up by just saying there's some things happening there in the church that the Lord commends them for. One is they hold fast my name. You did not deny the faith. You've already got a martyr to prove it. Remember last week we, he introduced the idea that there would be martyrdom for the faithful. And then... Now, he names a martyr, the Lord does. He knows. By the way, if you're ever martyred for the faith, the Lord knows your name. In fact, the book of Isaiah says over and over, he's going to give you a new name. You're going to be an overcomer. 
You're going to eat of the tree of life. You're going to, as this text says, you're going to eat the hidden manna, the life-sustaining, true spiritual manna, Christ himself. And all of these wonderful things that will happen to you if you're martyred. But here's the problem. The problem is not the Christians were facing martyrdom so much as they were facing compromise. And that's what the two references here to the false religions. They are people. He said, I have a few things against you. He said, there are people among you who are teaching of Balaam. Balaam ways, Balaam's error, it's called by Peter in his epistle and by Jude in his epistle. They mentioned Balaam. Ah, we're out of time. I was going to tell you all about Balaam. <laughs> we, we had a whole summer Bible course back about 10 or 12 years ago on the, the ministry of the great prophet Balaam. I did four lectures on, on Balaam. And it's found in the book of Numbers, chapter 22, 23, 24, 25, and then a few more references later on. Uh, I'll tell you who Balaam was. Balaam was the, the greatest preacher of his day. He was the most famous most respected, most watched, most listened to, and probably one of the wealthiest prophets in all the ancient world. Not just in Israel, in the whole ancient world. He lived over in the area of the Euphrates. And he was called on by the king of Moab, Balak, to come over and curse Israel because Balak the Moabite king was looking and Israel was multiplying. Israel was prospering. Israel was moving. They were getting bigger and bigger. They were winning wars. They had already fought the, the Amorites. They hadn't even gotten into the promised land yet. They were under Moses' leadership still and hadn't even entered the promised land, but they were taking over these great territories in the largest kingdom between Egypt and the promised land for God's people was the Moabites. Moab, who was the uh, incestuous uh, son of Lot with his daughter. And that's who the Moabites are. He said, come over and curse these people. So he saddled up his donkey and headed out. Remember the story, I bet you from Sunday school, you remember about that donkey just not wanting to go and finally stopping, stopping, because he saw an angel forbidding. And the, the Bible says this, was, this prophet was was, was anxious to go. And the reason he was anxious to go is Balak had sent his messengers over to him and come into his headquarters with a huge, huge donation to Balaam Enterprise, Missionary Enterprise Incorporated. <laughs> Balaam was a commercial preacher and he was a prosperity preacher and he was loaded and wanted more. But when he got over there, every time he tried to curse Israel and he started he had four great ceremonies where he brought in oxen and they had a big worship service and the people of Moab gathered and 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 Balaam presided over that worship service and every time he was getting ready to curse God's people he would see some aspect of the fulfillment of the promise God had made to Abraham they were a great people they were a great nation they were, had a great name a great reputation they were a blessing to the people. They were wonderful people. And he couldn't curse them for just observing the blessing of God upon Israel. And so he ended up blessing Israel. And he got in constant trouble with the king. And they tried this over and over. Each time they gave him a bigger offering. Each time he got a bigger worship service. 
more lights, more sound, more music, bigger, bigger venue. And each time that he did that, he blessed Israel. And if you go back over there and read it, his final oracle, he had four great oracles, four great sermons. His fourth oracle, his fourth sermon, begins to bless and praise Jesus Christ. He talks about there's a star in David. He talks about there's a scepter. And he names all of those things that are very, very prophetic concerning the ministry of Jesus Christ. And one of the things he mentions is that he rules with a sword and with a rod of iron. And that is his word and that's his judgment. You see what Jesus says, and I've got to wrap this up. What Jesus says is, I know where you are. I know where you live. I know what you're up against. But I'm telling you, you need to keep the faith you need to keep believing in me. You need to be ready to go all the way to death, all the way to martyrdom. And when you do, there'll be some wonderful things that will happen to you. But if you don't repent, the word is here. The doctrine of repentance is everywhere in your Bible. It's in every epoch of time. Repentance was required of everybody in the Bible in order to come to God and to be saved. Everybody had to repent of their sin. And Jesus here calls for repentance he says, if you don't repent, then I'm going to take those that are teaching the doctrine of Balaam. And by the way, I don't have time to talk about it, but the Nicolaitans was a very similar doctrine. It was a doctrine of compromise. Here's what Balaam finally told the people. I can't curse you. God won't let me curse you. All I can do is bless. But let me give you a secret. And here it is. If you'll just let your young men pay attention to the young women of Moab, those young men will find themselves compromising their moral life for the sensuality and the pleasure. And they'll start dating those girls, marrying those girls, having relationship with those Moabite girls. And before you know it, they'll be worshiping the God of those Moabite girls. And you won't have to put any kind of curse on anybody. Just let that sensuality, let that sexuality, let that attraction, let that worldliness get in their souls. And if that happens, they'll turn from God and it'll be worse than a curse because they'll have God on their case. And God, and that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. That's what, that's what Balaam did. Balaam said, all you've got to do is not take a big, bold stand and have a big All you've really got to do is just compromise a little. Just compromise a little. By the way, that's what makes the story of Ruth so wonderful. Ruth was one of those Moabite girls that came to know the Lord in a wonderful way. I'm a few hundred years ahead of the story, but, but that's what happens. All you got to do is compromise a little. So we could go to the festivals. They're fun festivals. We could sing the music. We can, we can dilly-dally around with whatever the culture says and we'll be okay. That's all we need to do. We don't need a big curse of God on our lives. Just keep on living the way you're living. Keep on doing what you're doing. Keep on selling out. Keep on compromising. Keep on being lukewarm. Keep on being shallow. Stay away from any serious commitment to the Lord. And you'll find yourself in the way of Balaam. And you'll find yourself under the... And guess what God's going to do? God's going to pick up that sword 
that he gave the power to the state and one of these days he's going to supersede it with a sword that comes out of the mouth of Christ. And if you want to get to the end of the book of Revelation, you'll see there's a great conquest and the sword, the double-edged sword that comes out of the mouth of Christ is his word. And just like his word created everything in the beginning, his word is going to, to consummate and consume things at the end. In other words, Jesus is going to pick up his sword and it's going to belong in that day. I'm going to say this before I'm done, Tommy. In that day, Jesus himself with his sword and his rod of iron will be the totalitarian government. Praise his name. It'll be a reign wherein dwelleth righteousness and peace forever and ever and ever.